Hello and welcome to Affable Chat. My name is Benjamin and this is my co-host Joey. Hey, how's it going? And today we're talking about the third movie in the Cornetto Three Flavors trilogy. Today we're talking about The World's End. Why are we even here? We are here to get annihilated. Have you got any plans for dinner at all? Tonight, we will be partaking of a liquid repast as we wend our way up the Golden Mile, commencing with an inaugural tankard in the first post, then onto the old familiar, the famous cock, the cross hands, the good companions, the trusty servant, the two-headed dog, the mermaid, the beehive, the king's head, and the hole in the wall for a measure of the same, all before the last bittersweet pint in that most fateful terminus, the world's end. Leave a light on, good lady, for though we may return with a twinkle in our eyes, we will in truth be blind, drunk. This is a British sci-fi action comedy directed by Edgar Wright. The cast includes James Bond, Argus Filch, Nicholas Angel, Ed, Bilbo Baggins, Andy Wainwright, and the Headmaster from Deadpool 2. I watched this movie on YouTube. Joey, how did you watch it? I watched it on physical DVD. That's right. I have a three... Uh, triple feature uh, physical copy of all three wow. of these movies. So wow. that's how I watched all of them. A true fan. And, uh, that's true. I am a true, I'm a true fan. Cornetto boy. And, as is tradition for this series, I will mention some of the trailers that preceded this movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we got Machete Kills, uh, uh, Kick Ass 2, RPID, um, and then uh, Two Guns, and then uh, that. Uh, Steve, uh, Steve Jobs biopic Jobs starring um, Ashton Kutcher. Uh, what was actually kind of hilarious about this was that RPID or I- RIPD, that's what it is, RIPD um, and Jobs both featured Can't Hold Us by Macklemore in the, in the trailers. <laughs> like the same part of the song. I, you know, I had it on and I was like, oh, you know, like, oh, this movie sucks too. I can't believe I watched all, I've seen all these movies and all of them suck. Um, and and then I'm like, hold on a second. Did I just hear this song? And I went back. I had to like scroll back, which was easier than it would be on HBO Max. But uh, you know, we'll just, we'll just leave that out of this. This uh, <laughs> and I, I was like, yes. Oh my gosh, they played the exact same song they, because um, you know these movies came out around the same time, so the same popular songs were on the radio and were being played. So they grabbed something from the pop charts and stuck it in their trailer. And it happened to be the same exact one. Even that is those movies freaking hilarious. Have very different tones. <laughs> it's very it's, funny. That that song is definitely a banger, though. So I definitely I understand where they're coming from. Sure, sure, but that's not why they chose it. <laughs> they chose it because it's popular. <laughs> okay, well, let's begin our analysis of the world's end by going over the synopsis that you wrote. Go ahead, Joey. All right. When they were kids, Gary King and his four best friends. Oliver Chamberlain, Peter Page, Stephen Prince, and Andy Knightley ran the town of Newton Haven. On their last day of high school, the quintet attempted the Golden Mile, an epic 12-stop pub crawl that featured all of Newton Haven's best bars. When they tried, only three of them made it to the morning, and they didn't make it to every pub, but it was still the greatest night of Gary's life. 23 years later, 
Oliver, Peter, Stephen, and Andy have all grown up and gone on to promising careers in other parts of the country, while Gary, well, he's still living in Newton Haven, dreaming of the day he can run the Golden Mile again with his oldest friends. He shows up in each of his friends' lives unannounced and begs, bribes, and lies to convince them to again attempt the most epic pub crawl of their lives. The crew immediately notices weird things about Gary, like that he still has the same beat-up old car from 20 years ago, complete with a mixtape made by Steven. He has been stealing Peter's identity to get out of traffic stops and using inside jokes they made up in high school. The first two pubs go off without major incident, even though they have both been bought out by some sanitizing corporation that makes everything look the same. The third pub, the famous Cock, still has Gary banned, so he drinks some fallen soldiers outside. Gary and the crew also meet up with Oliver's sister, Sam, who both Gary and Stephen have a crush on. They talk to her briefly before she goes her own way. In Pub 4, The Crosshands, Gary goes to the restroom and confronts a rude teenager for being too cool for him. The teenager tries to warn Gary to keep away from him, but Gary doesn't listen, so they fight. Gary defends himself, but in the fight, he tears the kid's head off with a pop, revealing not bloods and guts, but a weird socket in blue liquid. Gary's friends enter the bathroom, and soon they're all fighting teenagers who aren't teenagers. The group survives, but are obviously shaken. It seems some members of the town have been replaced with robots? Uh, you probably shouldn't use ro- Blanks would probably be better. Do you know what robot okay. means? Uh, 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 they decide the best course of action is to pretend all is well, continue the pub crawl, and act as if nothing is wrong. In the sixth pub, the trusty servant, they meet an older man who used to sell them weed as kids. They call him the Reverend Green, but the Reverend is not willing to play Gary's games. See, he knows the town has been taken over by robots. Uh, I'm going to stop you right there. Robots? Are you sure you want to use that word? But he basically is okay with that. He tells Gary to not draw attention to himself before being summoned out of the pub to his presumed demise. They continue to fight off robots in secret. Robots, again, I feel like this word, it doesn't mean what you think it means. And meet up with Sam again in Pub 7, the two-headed dog. Oliver goes to the restroom, but things get hairy in the eighth pub, the mermaid. Women dressed in schoolgirl outfits dance on the boys, seducing them, while Oliver watches and Stephen is pulled aside by the town kook, who explains that the robots... Robots again! (laughs) ...are taking over the town, one person at a time. All they need is your DNA, and then it's curtains for you. Your fleshy body is disappeared, and a blank you (laughs) with some of your memories starts walking around town. Stephen takes this information and convinces the crew, including Sam, to leave. They head to the Beehive, Pub 9. Inside, they meet another acquaintance from 20 years ago, Gary's favorite teacher from high school. He, of course, has already been replaced, but he presents the old friends an opportunity. These robots, who he insists shouldn't be called robots, are here to prepare humanity to join an interstellar community. They want to help us be the best version of us and are replacing small groups and key locations to help us see the light. Everyone is put off by this. Everyone except Oliver, who now that you say it has been acting pretty strange 
Andy knocks the top of his head off, revealing he is a robot. He is a, ro- uh, he, a robot. This is the thing, right? A robot comes from the word slave in, uh, in Czech, which you know, has this negative connotation <laughs> that uh, possibly we should try, try to get, away, get around. Um, a fight ensues, and the remaining friends fight off a huge wave of, well, bots. But more and more keep coming, so our heroes flee. Gary helps Sam get to her car and escape, and Peter is overrun by robots in the woods. <laughs> All that remains is Gary, Andy, and Steven. They exchange scar stories to prove they haven't been replaced, and Gary insists they finish the pub crawl. Andy and Steven fall reluctantly, fighting off robots left and right <laughs> gary finally makes it to the last bar the world's end where a full glass of beer is waiting for him he and andy fight but gary pulls a lever leading to a secret bunker under the pub here is the robots headquarters and gary andy and steven meet the network a super intelligent hive mind that is behind it all it does its best to convince Gary and his friends that it's there to help them and to bring them to the next stage of evolution and collaboration. It even shows them robots that are younger versions of themselves and offers eternal youth as an incentive to join the cause. But Gary refuses to listen and tells the thing to fuck off. The network, exasperated, eventually agrees to leave and then does. Unfortunately, it was holding a lot of stuff together. Without the network's influence, the entire town erupts in a nuclear explosion, wiping Newton Haven off the map and essentially ending the world. Gary and crew are saved from the worst of it by Sam, who returns in her car. In the epilogue, we see all of our heroes, some of which are now robots, continuing their lives in a post-apocalyptic hellscape, all except Gary, who has recruited the younger versions of his friends and travels the countryside looking for adventure. The end. So there we have it. The events of The World's End as succinctly as possible. We'll begin our analysis with our pros and our cons. Joey, what did you like about The World's End? This movie's funny. I like funny movies. Um, it's got some well-written characters, um, some of the best, you know, well-fleshed-out characters of the Cornetto trilogy, um, some really epic foreshadowing, and just like you know, what you come to expect from Edgar Wright, an incredible follow-through on that um, on that foreshadowing. Really decent action uh, compared to the other ones in the series, especially, and um, a message that I think gives you a lot to chew on. What about you? What did you like about it? It's got that classic Edgar Wright editing and style and transitions, witty dialogue. Like you said, it is funny. I agree that this is great action, probably the best in the whole series. The fight scenes were awesome. I loved seeing body parts popping off left and right and all the different, uh, you know, kind of pseudo long takes. You can tell there are transitions in there, but the way it's edited, it's supposed to look like it's all in one take, which which looked really good. Uh, the music was great, as you come to expect with Edgar Wright movies. We got a lot from the supporting cast, like you said, probably the most that we've gotten so far in the trilogy. And uh, it's a creative idea. The the concept in this one, I think it's it deviates from the formula so far. It's risky, and I applaud taking risks um, it, it, to a certain extent. <laughs> and and then that leads us to our cons. Joey, what did you not like about The World's End? This is going to sound weird, but it feels contrived and not as cohesive as the other ones in the trilogy. 
Um, and uh, I, there's some moments at the end that I feel just don't really make sense. Like, why does Gary want to complete the Golden Mile? Why is that so important to him? Uh, and it's never really clear what that's supposed to represent. Um, like, even though the world and everything around him is falling apart, this is still like his only priority that he has. And then, you know, why does Andy fight him at the end? Why is Andy so like trying to keep him from completing this mission? Um, you know, what exactly is Andy's goal in in this moment as well? I, I don't know. I, I have a lot of trouble understanding exactly why our characters are doing what they're doing up until the last few moments of the movie. What about you? Yeah, I, I felt the same way. This movie didn't have that same satisfying catharsis that the first two had, where everything kind of came to a satisfying point where you're saying, like, this was the purpose of all the stuff we had, and now yep. it's over. This movie kind of, it's like, ah, well, we had a bunch of stuff, and not all of it seemingly mattered. The Also, outside of the big twist, this movie felt kind of predictable. There, there weren't. There were a lot of moments that I think were probably supposed to seem, uh, you know, surprising that weren't. Like, for instance, when Mm. Nick's younger self is presented to him, they kind of been building up to this idea. I thought it was decently compelling that it's like, hey, you've been trying to be the younger you this whole time. What better? You you were literally giving you the perfect opportunity to forever be like that person that you were. And he like puts his hands on the head. And at this point, we've seen so many robots get their heads ripped off. I'm like, yeah, he's (laughs) obviously about to pop his head off. And then he does that, right? And, And so it just felt like it wasn't as well planned out or tied together as we've come to expect from the first two in the Cornetto trilogy. And also, yeah, I felt kind of the same way where motivations seemed a little bit muddled. Even the network itself, how does it work? Shouldn't it know that they're, you know, outside of the network as soon as uh, we get our first fight between Gary and the teenager in the bathroom, wouldn't that just lead to either an endless wave of them showing up or at the very least the beginning of the seduction? The the thing that I, I feel like we're missing here is a convincing pitch from the network that is, you know, has allegedly worked on other planets where they're like, join us. And it will actually work. Like, I would love to have seen a character who willingly joins because he's like, yeah, this actually makes sense to me. And then them trying, like, everybody else disagreeing and having a reason to disagree. So I felt like it was just kind of oversimplified that they're like, yeah, we just essentially replace everybody (laughs) except for these spineless, impotent guys who get pissed off when the whole network thing falls apart. So... Yes. A lot there. And <laughs> let's, no, you're absolutely right. And I want to get directly into that in our next section, our overall section, because I think reading up a little bit about this movie, very, very kind of loosely, this one was, uh, was written originally as a screenplay that Edgar Wright wrote when he was like 21 called The Crawl or Crawl or something, which is about um, some friends going on a pub crawl. And then I think the sci-fi elements and everything was, was added in later. And it became part of this, you know, trilogy later on in the series, which deviates from both Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead in that it didn't start with the genre or like this kind of idea that they were trying to wrap around, right? It started out with an original idea that they, they, they adapted into something else. And it's, it's also, also from what I read, Edgar Wright was trying to make this a soft science fiction movie or a, um, uh, what's the word? Um, shoot, I just had it up. It's not, he calls it something other than soft science fiction. It's um, social science fiction, uh, which is this idea that like uh, of speculative fiction where you are exploring kind of the 
sociological or psychological effects of a new technology or an interesting problem, right? This is my favorite kind of fiction. I love stuff like this. And uh, this movie doesn't do enough with that. It takes this idea of robots, which are very, very compelling and done, uh, we've seen very, very well, especially recently in movies like Ex Machina or even Annihilation or Blade Runner for that matter, um, all explore this idea that robots present um, in a very, very interesting way. This movie is basically just using that as window dressing, though. It, it attempts to build this narrative around this idea, but it doesn't explore any of the interesting nuances of it, just like you just described, where there's, um, there's actually a compelling argument to be made by the network. It, it's, it's making an actually interesting pitch to our characters. And I think it would be more powerful if it actually did successfully seduce them um, beyond the point of just like the the uh, carnal pleasures that are that are uh, are presented to them, right? They they, they could actually show a reasonable benefit um, that is not just to them personally, but to the entire world by replacing some of them with robots. And they it, it's okay that that Gary's not convinced by that, but I would like to have seen somebody be convinced by that for no other reason than to convince the audience that it is a somewhat compelling argument. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you, you as the audience are looking for excuses to go along with, or to explore different ideas, right? If one of the characters in the movie says, this is a good idea, you, through your suspension of disbelief, will agree with that character, at least in part. And then later, when you're thinking about it more critically, you can say, no, I disagree with that person. But you still have that interesting thing to chew on. There, this idea of robots as like a conduit or like a... Um, uh, a transition between humanity and something completely artificial is extremely interesting. But this movie does not do enough to show us the different avenues that that goes in, right? Uh, this idea that like, where exactly does humanity end? Is, are the blanks actually people? Are they like, are they actual people that we should treat with respect? Or are they something completely other than us, right? Are they just going through some sort of, um, you know, uh, complicated dialogue tree or are they actually thinking for themselves and how much of yourself is preserved in a blank because clearly every blank is um part of uh the the network and and agrees with the network and wants to do everything the network says right they've been brainwashed to do that way but they still retain some of their old memories and some of the same attitudes that they used to have you know what i mean so where does that end? Where does that begin? These are very, very interesting questions, but they're not explored well in this movie. And Which is disappointing like, because yes. you had the potential to, especially, you could even have the same characters that become robots still become robots. It's clear to us that uh, Peter and uh, Oliver, Oliver are kind of the most, uh, I think all of the characters besides Gary have uh, some sort of tendency towards conformity and yes. there's this like they've had varying results as a uh because of that conformity and i think the easiest one to pinpoint where conformity has worked for him is peter he's a car salesman at his dad's company it doesn't matter if that was his passion or whatever it's worked out well for him they said it what did they say at the beginning they said he was gilded or something like he uh, mm-hmm. they were like jumping into the pool at his house because he's rich and yes. conformity has worked for him. So he would have been perfect for the network to come to him and say, Peter, join us. Here's all of the reasons why you should. And then for him to come back to the group and say, guys, 
I did it. Uh, now I'm I'm a robot. And through him, we could explore what that really meant, what humanity he lost, and and then also what benefits he gained by making the decision consciously uh, through yes. like peaceful means. And then we get to, that could uh, that has the potential to be more chilling than somebody who gets just completely b- b- mobbed by robots and forced to become one of them because if you might as well just make them zombies at that point, right? Or like. You know, another interesting aspect of this is the reverend, right? He gets a call from his supervisor and then like he's disappeared, right? You never see him again. But that that could be an interesting element of this, right? Where there are certain rules that you have to follow and otherwise you get, you know, assimilated. Um, But like there are some people that just decide to join and they are fine with that, right? So like there's like this dynamic, there's like multiple layers in which you can be integrated or blended in with the... um, uh, with the network where you can be your own fleshy person or you can be, uh, you know, who's independent of it, like someone like Gary, or you can be someone who is reluctantly um, uh, ascribed to it, like the reverend, or you can be someone who's very, who um, joins up uh, because he actually believes in it, like like your fictional, you know, your hypothetical My- Peter, or mm-hmm. um, somebody who uh, has just been completely replaced um, and against their will, whatever, and now is a, a has been completely turned into a robot and is now working at the bidding of the network without any sort of, um, you know, uh, previous um, hesitations attached to that. You know, right. there's a whole spectrum of, of um, opportunities there. And there's tons of stuff in between that. And it's a lot of, a lot of gray areas that you could pick and pull at to tell an interesting story about how these two net, like um, civilizations could interact and, and integrate with each other. Um, like yeah. for instance, but- you could have taken the bully a little bit further and said, this guy wasn't just a menace to Peter. Maybe he's a, pe- a menace to everyone. And he was a net negative on society. <laughs> and the robots were able to calculate that. And they're like, well, we replaced him on purpose because he was no good. We don't have to yes. replace you. You can join us if you want, but you're doing fine. There's like, there's certain limits to these things. If we want to have a productive and cohesive society and see, I got like, a quote, I got a you quote can, for you to, to go along with that. I am so sorry. I didn't know freedom meant people doing stuff that sucks. You know, that's from Rick and Morty. Summer says that after she goes to the planet that's been completely assimilated by a hive mind, right? And that's the pitch. That's the exact pitch that um, the, the network does, except that Rick and Morty does a much more compelling job because it's from the perspective of the hive mind and shows you just how shitty people really are when they're left up to their own devices. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, this movie goes in that same direction, but it, it doesn't it doesn't give you that same compelling idea, right? It, it, it gives you like pieces of it, gives you a part of it, gives you something to kind of feel around with, but nothing really to like really explore, nothing to like really kind of pull at your mind the way that something like Ex Machina does. That's what I think is ultimately disappointing about this movie is that the world, um, Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz take these genres that are very, very well-worn and does something new and pushes this idea these these things that we're very familiar with into a new direction. It, it challenges other people that are trying to make movies like this to do something better and do something good. You know, it, it proves that you don't have to have a completely original story to make something that is some of the best written stuff in the genre, if not ever. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And this, I'm not saying that this movie is bad because it's original. I'm saying that it takes this idea that we've seen before, that we have uh, we've explored in other media. Um, you know, it's not really fair to say to, to compare it to Ex Machina because Ex Machina came out the year after this movie. But 
you know, robots and the idea of like human consciousness and the ship of Theseus and the, your identity are all very well-worn topics in philosophy. This movie does nothing to really expand on that besides kind of giving you the like, ah, uh, humans, humans be humans kind of thing, which isn't really a, which really isn't an argument. It's sort of avoiding the question in my opinion. Yeah, it's not really asking the question at all or, or really asking you to think. They're just saying, like, look, look at how humans are. Like, I'll, yes. I'll give you a, for instance, like, what conclusion are we supposed to draw from the fact that the humans end up being kind of uh, bigoted against robots in the, <laughs> like, apocalypse? Is that's that great, just supposed to be point. like, humans be bigoted, you know? Like, <laughs> that humans are always up to that bigotry. Like, like whether we're in good times or bad, humans are going to be bigoted towards somebody. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> okay, what is the, what are you saying? You know, right. is are, are, like it's just a statement. And even in this one, like it, it the going back to the question is like what whether you should join the network or not. They just went ahead and said no for you. They were just like, yeah, it's it's bad. Uh, co like conformity bad, assimilation bad. Uh, run away from the robots with the glowing blue eyes. Right. There, you know, at a certain point, the network kind of gives up. You know, completely. It, it, there's there's actually a couple points where it gives up right there it tries to convince them and then it's like okay well we'll just take you over right and then they continue to escape and then when they actually meet like an embodiment of the network in, underneath the world's end um uh the network again gives up because he's unable to convince gary of anything which is a you know i will give this movie credit like it's a satisfying uh payoff for gary winning every argument through sheer stubbornness <laughs> he's never wrong <laughs> um the yeah the um i i think that it is really interesting to like kind of play with this idea of like um w without a moderating hand right humanity literally screws themselves um but then it, it kind of begs this question of which would you prefer would you prefer pure freedom or a benign tyrant right this sort of, it becomes pretty political pretty quick, but I think for most people would prefer at least a little bit of both of those things. Um, but again, I, it feels wrong for anyone other than us humans to make that distinction. If there has to be a tyrant, then that person should at least be human. Um, but yeah, I, I liked, I feel like, again, I like to have those conversations. I like to explore this more. I like for this movie to take this, do what it did to the other genres, take this idea and really run with it and get in and really play in this, in this playground, you know, really give you something deeper. Um, but it doesn't uh, like the blanks in the movie are not just robot replacements. They, you know, they contain pieces of you. They are made of your DNA. They have your memories. But again, the movie doesn't really address this overlap. What is the difference between you and a blank? Are they still people? Why or why not? We get these fun little bits at the end where the blanks have been accepted into society in some ways, right? But there's, but like, you know, there's this really interesting ship of Theseus question that's never really addressed. Where does humanity lie? Is it in your blood? Is it in your brain? Because all of that stuff can be simulated. And especially today, like, I really want to have conversations like this because, you know, more than ever, everyone's talking about uploading to the metaverse, right? Pretty soon we're going to be interacting with bots that we can't tell our bots. You know what I mean? That kind of idea. I'm of already getting in arguments with them on Twitter every day. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's already happening. The, this, this idea of personhood, uh, you know, uh, of digital entities is a very interesting and important question that we're eventually going to have to address. Every time I think about robots, I think about 
um, or or like you know AIs or anything. I think about this movie because of their discussion about the word robot and how it's probably going to be a slur in the future. <laughs> it's, just, it's it's funny to think about that, but it's also like it could be right. And ultimately, like I feel like that's the legacy of this movie. That's what kind of stuck with me way more than this idea of like personhood or being replaced or like even moderation as like. Um, uh, you know, as a governance style from some external source, none of that really sticks out to me. It's it's really like the action and like this idea of uh, robot being a, a slur. <laughs> Those are the things that like <laughs> that like stuck in my mind more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, along with that, I I think you know this movie still has the same wit and uh, editing that you know the other ones had. So it's it's fun to watch, right? Definitely, like, it was it was a fun little adventure to go on. Uh, but yeah, in in retrospect, like once you have some time to sit with it, it's a little disappointing that it doesn't really go as far as it seemingly easily could have. Well, that's the thing too. Is like I the, the what I really love about Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead is that they sat with me, and I I was I was thinking about them for days later you know not just because i'm doing a podcast about it but like i would think about some of the my favorite moments some of my favorite phrases you know i i say murder 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 all the time and no one knows (laughs) any idea what i'm referencing um this like you know those movies like live in my head and they it wasn't just that i had fun watching them they like really kind of they really affected me and and made me think critically about movies like this but and also just like how comedy is written and just marveling at the immensity and the complexity of these incredible scripts this movie doesn't have that same effect right it is it is fun to watch it's fun to be along for that ride but there is like these moments that are that are weird you know it's like why can't the robots ever catch them <laughs> and like yeah. why don't the robots like why don't they work in a way that like, like you described before where like they're constantly communicating with each other why aren't they all connected so that everyone knows whatever all what all the other robots know like th- that's not really it's literally a thing. the network right <laughs> it's like uh, there, there's just these obvious little things that kind of pick at you which i can put aside while i'm watching the movie and watching um nick frost run through the street and you know punch a woman in the stomach to take his wedding ring out like <laughs> that's you know i'm okay with that in that moment but then later on it just fades away you know it it, it doesn't sit with me it doesn't affect me as much as um uh, movies that are in the same genre or movies made by the same people in different genres right yeah Yeah, i i totally agree with that again it just doesn't the pieces don't all don't all fit together cohesively and then you're kind of just left with uh you know kind of a mess like if each one of the movies that we've watched so far we've we've had this idea of almost like this woven mesh uh this thing this thing that's like so intricately woven together the first two are so expertly done and then the third one is like kind of half finished and like the design is a little bit off center and uh not as complex and then it's tough because when you're asked to follow up the first two in this trilogy you're up it's an uphill battle you know but you could say the same thing about hot fuzz going like following up Shaun of the dead and and that they did expertly so i think being disappointed is a reasonable response uh seeing what we've seen so far uh, even though it is, it's tough to set a movie up like that with those yeah. expectations. I I completely agree, but but at the same time, I'm willing to give this movie a chance more than I think I would in other situations as well. I, I want to I want this movie to be good. You know, I I'm looking for excuses to like it. You know, I I, I want to be like, yeah, all three of these are are so good. You got to watch all three, and and it'll be an amazing film experience for you. But it, it's just. It, 
I just can't do that in good conscience because this last one doesn't like doesn't quite fit that. But the, yeah, there's there are still lots and lots of details in this movie that are very impressive. You know, yes, I yes. think the um, the Golden Mile pubs, just the names alone, as they fit together with the the story, are so cool. Um, and yeah, let's let's run through that. So I actually um, I found this quote that said that when they were making the movie, they were trying to pick out like uh, names of pubs. They actually went through a whole bunch of actual pub names to come up with the names for this. And uh, they wanted them to read like tarot cards, which I think is uh, perfect because they're not, some of them are, are kind of literal, but other ones are a little more subtle. And I think it's, I really do think it's perfect. It's, it's, it's really is a good illusion. So here's, here's the list. The first one is the first post, which is obvious is the first one. The second one is the old familiar, which is identical <laughs> to the first post. Yep, it's yep. a complete, this exact same bar. Um, then the next one is the famous cock, which is, of course, a reference to Gary because he's kicked out of that one. Um, so he is the famous cock, <laughs> which <laughs> makes sense. Um, the cross hands. So this one is like, uh, like it has, I guess, a couple of different meanings because like on one hand, it could be in like people being together, which does kind of happen, right? Peter opens up about his like his bullying experience and all that stuff, right? People are kind of opening up a little bit. They're becoming a little bit closer, but they're also at cross purposes because this is also where they learn that Gary's been lying to them. And this is the turn, right? This is the point where we learn that the ro- the, the uh, town has been taken over by robots is inside of this pub. So yeah. ev- everything, uh, and this is sort of the uh, the crossroads, you might say, or um, uh, you know when, when the things start to get hairy. This is sort of the... Uh, um, the moment where uh, things come to a head, right? And they also they use their hands, right? Or like they, you know, how people That's are saying, it's like you're gonna get these hands when you're gonna fight, and this That's is where right. they have the brawl. It is a fist fight. Yes, you're right. Uh, sometimes they use the robots' arms to hit other robots too. So I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but, <laughs> but maybe. Um, uh, the next one is the good companions. So this one is pretty uneventful, I believe. They. Um, they just go there and pretend to drink. So they all they all like go in there and then they all drink together um, as a cohesive unit. I don't think anything else really happens in this one. No, yeah, this yeah this is where they're like, okay, we just have to act normal and continue so they don't notice us. And they just go in there and all five of them in like in sync slam yes. beers, which is a hilarious moment when they're walking to the town and everyone's walking in rhythm at the yes. same time they are. <laughs> like, everyone's walking the exact same like uh, cadence. Um, and they're walking like five across. They look like they're part of some sort of like troop or something. Like they're they're like they've been programmed, but everyone else is like giving them the side eye, giving them some kind of interesting look. That's funny. Well, and, and while we're rehashing the individual the story and in, in, in its sequence, this is also exactly the way that it happened in the story that's told at the beginning. Yes. You know, the yes. the the foreshadowing is complete uh in, in its like uh, detail where it shows you every single event pretty much that will happen at least for the first nine pubs because obviously they didn't make it to 10 11 or 12 in their first attempt but everything down to the places where they'd lose peter and oliver when Sa- like the, where sam would show up and where she would leave them uh it's all there and uh, looking back at it it's it's like like i said in complete detail showing you exactly what's going to happen in this movie Oh, yeah. And there's like little turns of phrase, right? Like loses his head and things like that. Like all that just like fits together. Yeah. is I mean, 
you know, it, it's obvious that they wrote the story and then they wrote the foreshadowing before, afterward, right, right, to kind of fit along. But it's still very, very satisfying to watch it all come together. But yeah, even that though, even that bugs me because they don't make it to all the pubs in the first story, but they do in the second one. You know, they 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 kind of speed through the last three, which is necessary for multiple reasons. But again, it doesn't it doesn't match up perfectly in that way. You know, it, it, they don't give like some sort of like allusion to that in the um in the original story. There was like, oh, we just didn't finish or whatever, right? Whereas in this one, uh, in in the, in the second attempt, they do finish, but it's conditional, right? I wish they had given like a little bit more lip service to that. I wish they had said something like, we would have made it all of them, but uh, you know, um. We were being pursued, or like you know, the cops were after us, or like we we would have made it to all of them, uh, but um, you know, the sun was coming up, or I, I don't know, I, I can't think of anything on top of my head, but there could have been some sort of like double, you know, double entendre here, right? Sure. This movie does such a good job with stuff like that. the 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 simple phrase "they're blending in" is perfect, right? The first, like the idea that like oh, they're just like. Uh, pretending to be there but then like the literal kind of meaning of they're blending in as in like they are becoming part of it everyone is starting to become homogenous uh you know is uh expert it's a really well good turn of phrase okay next is the trusty servant this is where they meet the reverend green mm-hmm. who is then uh dismissed but he is not a robot when they meet him so you know, it makes sense that he is he is uh, a member of the collective without being a member of the collective you might say um, then is the two-headed dog, which, which is where they meet up with Sam again, and they meet the twins, who they fight um, in the little courtyard outside the bar. Um, so that makes sense as well. Yeah, that was a fun fight scene with the leg yes. arms. Yeah, he put the legs on their arms. Yeah, I, I've, I'm trying to think if I had a, I must have had a toy that was like those little socket things where you could like detach them and then put them back on because they look so familiar. Yeah, um, big action figure energy from the robots oh, yeah. in this movie. Uh, yes, the two-headed dog. That one's also pretty obvious. The next one is the mermaid, which I feel like is a little bit more cryptic. But this is like the uh, the club where they meet the marmalade sandwich, which is yes. the uh, the uh, two blondes and the redhead that where they the knew the from school, high school disco is happening. That's right, and they're all dancing out there. Um, I think mermaid is a pretty um, uh, is probably referencing sirens, mm-hmm. right? This, that's what you know, I was thinking. Yeah, something uh, from the water that's drawing people in. Um, yeah, which makes sense. Um, and, uh, I believe it is actually the pub before this that Oliver gets replaced. Uh, but you, um, that's you right. See him, Cause he goes uh, into the bathroom and then when he comes out, he has his birthmark again. Yes. And he doesn't care when people call him, Oh man, that's the thing yes. that tipped me off to it. Cause he was always so, um, uh, prickly when people called him, Oh man. Um, but as soon as he gets replaced, he's like, he's cool with it. Uh, because he's way more easygoing when you're a robot. <laughs> <laughs> Then after the mermaid is the beehive, which is where they get the pitch from Pierce Brosnan, uh, their old teacher, saying, hey, why don't you join us? Um, which is, again, you know, uh, not quite on the nose. I think it's a pretty good illusion. You know, the beehive could be a name of a pub. Cool, cool kind of name. And also like, hey, hive mind, join our collective. You know, bees. Uh, no one really hates bees, right? You don't want to get stung by them. But, you know, we all recognize that uh, bees are an important part of of uh, our our ecosystem you know we've all seen b movie we we all know how important bees are <laughs> and also this is the pub where they get swarmed by robots that's exactly right well done um next is uh the king's head um which uh they make some a direct allusion to but i don't remember exactly what it is this is where they where gary's by himself 
uh, after uh, and, and Andy and Steven are chasing him, trying to uh, kind of stop him and, and save him, I guess. Um, where so he, I guess- this is where they so this is pub number 10. Yes. Yeah, I I mean the only thing I can think of is it's uh you know his name's Gary King. So right. it's like his I don't know, so it's about him. Yes, it is. I mean this is where he kind of he's off by himself, right? Um and it's oh that's right. He I think he decides like um I'm going to go finish the, I'm going to finish the pub. I that's I'm right. going to finish the crawl and now they're in the king's head meaning like it's Gary's mission now. It's always been Gary's mission, but now we're really in Gary's head. Like we're we we there's no chance of us dissuading him um the next one is the hole in the wall which i didn't understand uh until steven runs into the pub with his car creating a giant hole uh in <laughs> in the pub which is hilarious um and then of course the last one is the world's end which i gotta say is an epic name for a bar i mean if i opened a bar called the world's end it'd be pretty cool uh, an apocalypse themed <laughs> like a uh, pub can you imagine? Yeah. That'd be so awesome. That is really cool. And it's funny because when they walk in, you, the camera is directly looking at the door as they're walking in, and there's signs on either side of the door. One says, welcome, and the other says, join our club. Yes, uh, that's which right. Is, <laughs> which is I perfect. love that. Very cool. And they have the, the, the beer that's like perfectly lit like on a, on a pedestal right there, uh, you know, the final prize for Gary to, to, to finish, uh, which is awesome. Yeah, um, I, I, I um, yeah. I, th- I think that was pretty clever, like, because it, it works both ways. They, they are on their own kind of cool British pub names, but also it has that classic Cornetto Three Flavors trilogy aspect that it means more than just its explicit meaning. So yes. I think that goes over well, as well as um, you know. Just in real life, I would love to live in a town where I could walk to twelve pubs. <laughs> oh my god, be and awesome. they're all worth going to. <laughs> I mean, even when we were living in college, like, there, was there even twelve bars on like, like on uh, like in Five Points or anything? Like, I mean, there was there was a lot of them, but there wasn't like I don't. I don't you'd know. have to do the math, but there certainly weren't twelve that were worth going to. <laughs> Definitely not. And you'd have to wait in line for each one of them. You yeah. Know? Like, and they weren't they weren't cool or cute, you know. They were just kind of like little places, like with nowhere to stand and like expensive beer. So, um, yeah, yeah. I, I uh, no, I I, de- I definitely agree with you. It would be cool to be able to actually walk to a uh, to twelve pubs uh, within a mile of them each other. Um, one other thing I wanted to kind of discuss with you. I saw this online somewhere, and I don't know, I don't know, I didn't really pick up on this, but maybe I just missed it. Uh, I think there's a theory that. This was Gary's last hurrah before he was going to off himself, before he was going to kill himself. Um, that he mm. was going, he was going to f- like fulfill this one last regret, and then that was going to be it for him, uh, and he would die happy. Essentially, um, we do see he has that um, band, like bandage on his arm, like from a hospital where it seems that he, like from self harm or something, they put him in some sort of psychiatric ward. Uh, and we're closely watching, closely monitoring him. Um, so it seems like there's some history of like instability at the very least from him. That's pretty obvious from the way he acts and the things that he's obsessed with. Um, but what do you think? Do you think that was there, was there anything that kind of hinted to that? Absolutely. I, I mean, I think that's explicitly what is meant by his wristband there, but at the same mm-hmm. time, it's, 
it's tough to um, really empathize with him because he's so clearly a bad person throughout the whole movie. Like it, right. it's it doesn't really seem so much as like that Gary is struggling or that there's like he's down on hard times. It seems like he's just perpetually stuck in the past and refuses to move forward. So it's it's almost like yeah, obviously sometimes people can't help themselves and we should take care of each other. I'm not saying that's not true, but the mo- the language of the movie doesn't do a lot to put us on the side of Gary and, and almost endorses this idea of him being the counter to uh, conformity. And even though he's an ass, even though he's uh, you know a liar and a cheat, he's also the antithesis to our true antagonist in this film, which is the like intergalactic conformity right it's the maximum version of what our day-to-day society is the thing that already got his friends and forced them to conform and become you know adults or uh you know corporate drones or functioning members of society he is the he is against that and he has survived this long without being that i almost got a message of like hope or something out of that where it's like I am the one who got to stay my true self and even though that that's not always easy I still am who I want to be as opposed to becoming uh, you know Andy who is a corporate uh, lawyer but his wife left him because he's so absent because of how much he's conformed to his day-to-day life that he stopped being himself it's like my it might be tough to be Gary, but at least I'm still Gary. Yeah, but the movie doesn't really like it pushes you toward that message, but it certainly does not feel like it endorses it because of how terrible everything turns out in the end. Another bit of foreshadowing is when they when they they say, "Oh, we watched the uh, orange of the sunrise," right? And then they were sitting on the hill at the end, watching the orange of a nuclear explosion that completely <laughs> wiped off this town from the the map and completely de- obliterated it, sending out an ENP that uh, destroyed all technology pretty much all over the world. I, I assume that similar events happened in the other locations that the network was uh, putting down its its roots. Um, yeah, essentially ending civilization as we know it. Um, it. It does not look like a good place to live in any sort of way. The sky is dark. Everything is gray. You know, there's robots walking around. Um, <laughs> sure, sure. It, but it's yeah. it's this kind of... that. This is where I'm kind of struggling to find the message of this movie because it shows us the network and wholesale rejects its message while at the same time showing us that the alternative is also pretty crummy as well uh andy at the or yeah andy at the very least is talking about how you know now that he's gone organic he doesn't really miss processed foods even though but does he because as soon as that little cornetto uh cornetto rapper runs by he's like grabbing at it like oh <laughs> right right but then you got steven and he's with sam and they look happy like there's like a little twinkling of uh you know this resilience uh, from humanity Definitely. and and the beauty of uh rejecting modernity or returning to monkey but uh, <laughs> I don't think, yeah, I think you're right. It's not necessarily like a wholesale endorsement of Gary, but at the same time, I don't think that it's a wholesale rejection either in saying that everybody else was right for having conformed. Well, yeah, there's one more pub in the, in the movie, the Rising Sun pub, which is the pub that uh, Gary and his uh, blank companions uh, go into um, and challenge all those thugs to a sword fight or whatever yeah. um, at the very end of the movie. Uh, so, you know, there's. What does that there's... mean? What am I supposed to get from that? 
I have no idea. I have no idea what I'm supposed to mean when I get from that. He calls himself the king, right? Which makes me think that he's like attempting to restart a monarchy from, by sheer force. You know what I mean? I guess. Like, but good like, luck with that. I don't know. Like, I don't know. As we're talking about this, it's kind of like it's sort of dawning on me. There's another message in this movie, which is that you know Gary says over and over again, like the whole point of living is to have fun and get wasted. You know, like you should just like go out there and and do what you do what you like and uh, and have fun doing it. <clears throat> which you know, I don't know if that's humanity's ultimate goal. I feel like humanity's ultimate goal should be something more in line with what the network wants, which is to join some sort of galactic civilization and, you know, learn and grow and uh, eventually spread out to other stars and, you know, colonize the galaxy uh, and all all of that, basically. But, you know, I think an alternative that I have heard, uh, you know, expressed uh, is to, like, we should just try to entertain ourselves for as long as possible. You know, the, the... uh, John Boyce, who makes those uh, incredible chart party and um, secret base videos on YouTube, um, he's written these short stories where humanity has solved all of its problems. We are immortal, right? We don't have any sickness or death, and but there's nothing to do. There's there, there's nothing to do in the universe, right? There's no. Why would we go to the stars? Why would we go out there? There's what? What's the point of it? And he he proposes that the point of everything is to play games. That we should just invent elaborate sports and play them forever. <laughs> and um, I think uh, I, I thought that was kind of silly, but the more I think about it, the the more compelling it is to me. And I think you know Gary King is in a similar vein here, where it's like, yeah, maybe we should just have a good time. And uh, having a good time doesn't necessitate necessitate uh, being connected to everything all at once. It doesn't necessitate any sort of network, right? It just uh, it requires you to have what you, you know, your own little world and, uh, and that, that kind of piece of it. You know, yeah, it's easy for you to say that when you're living in a state of privilege. Um, you know, there's plenty of people that would be suffering in a, in a world like that still. Um, but still, uh, um, maybe there's something there. Maybe, maybe that's really what this movie is trying to pitch to us is like uh, this idea of expanding outwards and ever connecting isn't... Um, uh, not really the, our goal. It shouldn't be what we're working toward. Maybe. Uh, sure. I, I, yeah, I guess like we said earlier, maybe it doesn't get that deep into it. I do think that this idea that John Boyce has is, is pretty compelling because uh, I'm a big sports guy. So I could, yeah. you know, you sit me down in front of the TV with some sports and uh, yeah, I could be, a, I, I, I'd be entertained for a while. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, me too. I mean, there's plenty of, there's plenty of game shows I love to watch, you know, I like, I like, <laughs> I like a good sport if I can get but, behind it. But it does feel like a question that's almost too big to answer, right? Like it's like, how? Do, what do we do? Are you with kidding me? This, is that the point of this podcast to answer these kind of questions? Aren't we supposed to be uh, solving humanity's problems? On We're the arbiters chat? of truth on existence. Yeah, yes, yeah. I don't know what, what I'm supposed to do with my own life, but I know what we should do as a species for sure. <laughs> Um, I do. I do want to go back to the beehive really quick and okay. talk uh, about Mister Shepherd. Is there a greater meaning to Mr. Shepard as opposed, like, beyond him just being another mouth for the network? Because at the beginning, we had this, uh, you know, he got brought up in the story that Gary was telling at the AA meeting where mm-hmm. he's saying that, like, I, he was one of the good guys, Mr. Shepard. And he, I told, like, he asked me what I want to do with my life. And I said, I just wanted to have a good time. And he said, that was funny. And then yes. later on, he tries to make them join the network. So what, what is the point of Mr. Shepard? Uh, I'm not sure 
what is, what is the point of him is as a character before he is conf- like before he's replaced but after he's replaced is he's fulfilling a similar a uh, role where he is like a teacher he's a per- person of authority which is what the network is also pitching themselves as you know we're we're the ultimate authority on, on like what a civilized civilization is um and so you guys should uh, should you know get in line and um just as a teacher right kind of uh, prepares you for the real world and gives you you know rules for life to follow um you know you, you could say i don't know that's you know it's kind of a certain lens to look at look through it yeah but um you uh you know he follows in that same kind of footsteps i feel like i think you could you could say that uh, the network chose him because they thought he would be a good messenger for these for these guys because they already know and trust him and see him as someone who is wise um and uh you know maybe there's something to that i don't know i think that um he's clearly saying something very similar to uh, or has a similar attitude uh at, as a robot as he does as a teacher in that like gary should join society and you know give up on certain uh certain aspects of his personality <laughs> Yeah, and I guess now that you say that, I do see this kind of uh, symmetry between like high school and then humanity as it exists up until this moment where they're supposed to join the rest of the universe or the galaxy yeah. or whatever. Because it's like in high school or in public school in general, like you have these, the government pays these people to teach you stuff and that's supposed to prepare you to enter society. And then in this same thing, the network sends down their robots and they're supposed to prepare the planet for joining the rest of the galaxy. And in both in instances we have this failure to launch where gary didn't successfully join society and then earth doesn't successfully join the community in the you know intergalactic union or whatever so yeah. okay that, that's a, that actually is a little bit more satisfying now that i've i've we've been able to connect those dots i also think it's funny that the network says that it's responsible for all of our like communications advancements over the last like few decades or anything i think that that a statement doesn't age well uh, because it's pretty clear based on like how Facebook and Twitter and you know other things have sort of ruined or YouTube for example have sort of ruined things that these are short-sighted human inventions that's some sort of divine um, you know uh, uh, gift that's been given down from above it's it's very clear that these have been uh, if not net negatives then like you know definitely not net positives in, yeah. for for some people it's been a uh, you know, radicalization and uh, disinformation are huge uh, problems, you know, underlying and under uh, uprooting our society. Um, and part of that, and it's only possible through a network uh, that is designed by uh, dumb people. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You got anything else before we do our cool Easter eggs? I got nothing else. All right. Let's move forward then. And. Uh, my first one is, I mean, this is like mildly satisfying, I guess, but in the, so Gary and Steven argue over who saw Sam first. And if you rewatch the story at the beginning, Gary does see her first and then he points her out to Steven. Like he, Mm. he looks second. And then after that, and they also found like the younger version of Sam looks very much like Rosamund Pike. They did a great job of casting the. <laughs> She's wonderful of in this movie. I was I was so surprised to see her. Yeah, uh, I didn't, me too. I didn't remember. I didn't. When the first time I saw this, I didn't know. I didn't reckon. I know. I didn't know who she was. But, yeah. Um, I was so. I was like, oh my gosh, it's Rosamund Pike. I can't believe it. 
Yes, yeah. I love her, and I'm glad she was She's in this amazing. movie. If anything, we didn't get enough of her, but uh, no. yeah, I was happy to see her. And then later on, when Sam shows up at one of the other pubs, which was the fourth one, I think, the one after the famous cock, it was... Uh, no, yeah, she I don't think it was the old that. familiar, and then she shows up again at... The two-headed dog. The two-headed dog. That's right, because she the fight with the two with the twins. Um, yeah, when she shows up at the two-headed dog again, Gary sees her first, and then Stephen after, uh, which <laughs> I guess is kind of cool. It doesn't really seem to lead to all that much. I mean, there was no. this kind of character development for Gary where he's like willing to stop like, contesting Stephen for Sam's attention, uh, but that didn't seem like Gary really ever had a chance, anyways. Like it was, it was. <laughs> Really, like that love story was not super compelling to me. No, uh, it just not. it kind of gave Stephen and Sam something to do. Uh, uh, another thing, it was I read this on like a BBC article. The UK's first roundabout is actually in Letchworth Garden City, and it was given a makeover for this film. The like part of the production budget went to uh, redoing that roundabout after they kind of tore it up for oh, the wow. set and it it is believed to be from 1909 apparently they don't know if it's officially the first one but that it's that's the lore of the roundabout they claim right, it right. to be it, the first it is called the first one yeah exactly whether or not it is just like the first post might not be of the first uh, bar that was made in newton haven <laughs> but it is the first one you go to on the golden mile yep yep <laughs> and then finally my last cool easter egg is they brought back the jumping over the fence gag in this one so we had it in all three movies this one again it was a little bit underwhelming but i feel like you it was the obligatory running gag you had to bring into this one it was good and it was different too because he knocks the entire fence over and there's nothing behind it (laughs) (laughs) yeah that was cool so uh any uh, any equally strikes from you joy Uh, i've already said said mine okay um, well, in that case, I believe we are going to conclude our discussion on the world's end. And as we do at the end of every uh, episode of Affable Chat, we will deliver our ratings. Joey, what rating do you want to give to the world's end? I give this movie uh, round and round and round again, England's first roundabout. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Perfect. Um, I give this movie sunglasses and Advil to survive the epic hangover tomorrow morning. Excellent. So there we have it. We've done it. We've made We've it to done the it. end well, of yeah, another do you, series. Do you want to have a brief discussion about the, all three? Yeah. Just, like, yeah. the experience of watching all three of these movies? Well, we, we as talked a, a, uh, yeah. Go ahead. I, we talked a little bit about how like this is a very unique trilogy and that these movies are not connected in any way. Um, they are, you know, the only way that they are connected is through the people that made them. Um, and it is, uh, it's, it is still very satisfying to see something like this. And um, the level of craftsmanship in all three of these movies is unparalleled really. Um, you know, they're definitely some of the best written comedies I can think of. Um, and they continue to give and give and give no matter how many times you watch them, there's more stuff to pull out, more little gags to get out. I think this one has a lot of that stuff. It's just a little more subtle um, than something like Hot Fuzz, um, where it, it's way more in your face. Um, but I still think that it's uh, all three of these are are worth watching, worth appreciating, and and worth going through. It's a uh, it is it's surprising that we don't see more stuff like this. I think because I mean these aren't like the most popular movies, but lots of people have seen them. Um, I I wore I have a three flavors Cornetta uh, trilogy shirt 
that has all pictures of all three uh, Silent Peg characters. Um, and I wore it to um, Aldi the other day. And the guy was like, oh, I love your shirt. And uh, he had seen at least one of the movies on it. So like that's, uh, you know, they, these movies hold a certain, uh, you know, cultural um, importance. I think that they um, do a lot for me as a person that likes movies. Um, but I also um, want to see more stuff like this. I want to see more people make things that are like a little different and more, more experimental and um, uh, don't necessarily connect uh, in obvious ways. I totally agree. And we've kind of gone over this idea, but it's just so refreshing to see these movies that are connected by nothing more than who's making them. Because by watching Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz and The World's End in sequence, there's a lot that I can bring from one movie to the next in like this idea of, oh, I need to be keeping out for foreshadowing. I can look forward to the witty dialogue. I know that yep. the editing is going to be intense and, and very well produced. All that stuff keeps me invested in a series without needing to have the characters, to, without needing to have one movie set up the next. You can kind of... While, again, there are so many examples of great sequels that go together. Like I definitely wouldn't want the Lord of the Rings to be three individual stories that don't connect. Right. That would make right, that right. trilogy better. I'm not saying it's a wholesale rejection of the existing or the, the, what the conventional trilogy, but it, I don't see why something like this couldn't be more prevalent with any number of directors and actors who bring their thing to the, who bring those same kind of energies together. Uh, looking at Tarantino, the way that he kind of reuses actors, the way that Wes Anderson kind of reuses actors, we have a similar thing that's going on, but I like this idea of saying it's going to be three. We're going to have these attributes that, uh, are, are going to exist are going to be prevalent throughout these three movies specifically. And that's what we're going to do. And, uh, it just creates an experience that has that same quality that you get from from sequels, which unfortunately seems like you have to be able to justify sequels to make movies these days. Yes. But without the baggage of needing to set up the characters for the next one or having like the Star Wars saga where you have this, the last three movies that where they said we're going to do sequels, but we're not going to plan them. So it's yes. going to be a, just a jumbled mess that ruin each other where episode seven to me was a great movie until episode eight where <laughs> the, the fact that the other movie exists ruins the movie that already exists that sucks so having the, uh, like a trilogy like this that uh this uh, this format is is fantastic and I, I i wish it was more prevalent i'm so glad you brought up star wars because i was thinking the exact same thing that those movies are sort of the opposite in this way where they're all three lead to the other right the they pick up almost immediately where the last one left off, but they have three completely different visions for what they're supposed to be and what the direction the story is going. The directors are literally fighting each other in the script about what's real and what's not. You know, they, they say they set one of them sets something up, the other one throws it away, the other one brings it back. You know, like it, it just, it's very, um, it's very disjointed and it, it, it leaves the audience feeling confused and also like you waste a lot of time because you invested when you saw the first one you're like well i might as well see the next one and after you see the the, the seven, you know episode 8 you're like well i might as well finish it off and then and say like me never watch another star wars again yeah <laughs> yeah but like that's the thing is like um that's like the formula that's what people are familiar with right and you can get away with that when you have different teams behind the scenes doing that and you have the same actors uh, on screen, right? This movie, it recycles actors for sure, but like other than Nick Frost and Simon Pegg, 
you know, everyone else is kind of interchangeable. Everyone else kind of comes in and out. Uh, Martin Short, is, or not Martin Short, uh, Martin Freeman is in all three movies, but he plays vastly different roles and vastly different, um, you know, uh, importance in all three movies. And I think that's wonderful. I think that's it's awesome that you could do that. And I think if this, you know, series was to continue, you may even see someone like Nick Frost getting subbed out and, and playing a, a smaller role for somebody else being uh, the foil to, um, to Simon Pegg's you know, main character. You know, that, that's, that's totally feasible and would still kind of fit into that. But the other thing that you mentioned is, is so true, which is that Edgar Wright has a very specific style, something that you can pick out of a lineup very easily, where someone like J.J. Abrams or even Ryan Johnson doesn't really have that kind of level. You know, it, it, there's their style. They certainly have like a unique kind of voice, but it's more subtle and easily diluted by a studio, right? Whereas Edgar Wright, is, it has that u- very uniqueness to it. And I think Tarantino feels that same way too, where there's a very, um, uh, there's, when you look, when you watch one of these movies, you can almost tell immediately uh, who made it. And you need that kind of um, level of involvement and that level of freedom um, if you want to make something like this, which is also pretty rare um, and, and, and risky, apparently. But I don't know. I, I, I'm willing to reward stuff like this. You know, I'm willing to watch it over and over again and buy the physical DVD and talk about it endlessly because it's, um, it's so unique and it's been done. It's, it's proven that it can be done really well. Um, and, you know, this idea that uh, of taking genre and, and um, making it into something new and, and building off of it and making it into something cool um, is done extremely well. But it doesn't have to be like that. You know, it can be about anything. It could be, you know, three stories about dogs or, you know, three stories about uh, pro- you know, programmers or something. Or even like, you know, something that I've, I've heard mentioned, but I've, I've never t- seen taken seriously is three stories set in the Star Wars universe that are on different sides of the galaxy, you know? There's three different the groups of people, three different sets of of characters that are all in, like in the same universe, but not connected uh, directly. Right there, it's all it's all this self-contained individual story that's set in this wider universe. I I that's not what this is, but it's uh, um, it's it's similar enough and it's different enough to make me feel like I'm invested. And in that situation, right, you are able to bring in different directors and different you know, in different teams to tell uh, a different story from a different perspective um, by different people all set within this kind of wider universe. And I think, I think that's really what people are kind of looking for. That's what something people liked about stuff like Star Wars and the MCU is the, the bigness of this universe, how, how deep it goes and how much, uh, how, how alive the world feels and how alive all the different places you can go are. Um, exploring that and not just focusing on like this one element is um, something that I think we're missing. Absolutely. And I mean, just going back to the idea of having like a director who's uh, joining forces with like a handful of actors or a group of actors, it's not, I mean, as we've seen, even in the Cornetto trilogy, it's not something you can guarantee to like get lightning in a bottle three times in a row, but you can have this kind of consistency that it's at least going to bring people in to watch these movies again. And I think that's kind of the difference between a Wes Anderson and Tarantino just releasing another movie versus saying we're explicitly making this trilogy because you're making some sort of a promise that we're going to have at least traits that are going to carry between these stories, even without having the stories connect, which 
at the very least, I hope that the Cornetto Three Flavors trilogy is an inspiration to the next Simon Pegg, Nick Frost, and, and Edgar Wright. The next trio, or it, it kind of feels like it goes beyond that. There's almost like a network of influence that they exist in. A network? Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, but I hope that we can see this iterated again, because this isn't the first time this has been done, right? They had the, that French three, uh, the three Colors trilogy uh, that we talked about with uh the first episode of this series uh with Shaun of the dead that you could see this kind of thing done again and i i hope that we do i hope i think that this is a great format and uh, a really pleasurable experience because even though i can criticize these long-running series uh, i can criticize mcu um i and star wars but i still like them the, that intertextuality is still like enticing so yes. being able to deliver on that like i said without the baggage that comes with that endless story is is something that i hope we can see again um right and and yeah. one last thing but like um yeah because there's a certain guarantee that comes along with that right when when you're like oh i'm gonna go see a star wars movie you kind of have an idea of what to expect right and the things that you might see in it and that sort of guarantee makes you more willing to go go and watch that but you know, I think this proves that like this, uh, you know, that doesn't necessarily extend to the same characters or even the same elements within, or like the same lightsabers or whatever, right? It's it's a certain feeling, a certain tone uh, can be that thing that brings you back. It can be um, you know a, a promise of, ex- of excellent writing or um, a promise of extremely entertaining story. Um, those things can be those bridging elements that brings audiences back. And you got to bring them back because you got to make money. Got to bring them back. (laughs) Ultimately, you have to make money. Um, Okay. Well, I think that is it for our thoughts on the series in general. Another series in the book. That's right. Uh, Knock it off. Check it off. That's right. And... um, And that'll do it for the Cornetto Three Flavors trilogy here on Affable Chat. Joey, what's next on Affable Chat? Next, we are doing the movie Her. Her, yes, the, uh, the her. one where the guy falls in love with his cell phone. I feel like I'm right. uh, living the movie Her every single day. Uh, although... Why? Because you're falling in love with your cell phone? <laughs> I, I mean, I act like it, don't I? Uh, <laughs> but I guess we'll see how accurate that statement is after we see Her, uh, which is what our next episode will be about. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like this episode, then all you have to do is say to your friends uh have you considered listening to affable chat have you considered assimilating to the affable chat yes network? have you considered joining the affable chat network <laughs> it's not about conflict it's about togetherness that's right uh, you can reach us on twitter instagram and tiktok at affable chat or send us an email affable chat at gmail.com if you want to see what we're up to and our, what our faces look like you can check out youtube uh and there's a affable chat there uh, and uh, Affable Chat is live on Tuesday night, 7 p.m. Eastern on Twitch. That's twitch.tv slash Affable Chat. That's going to do it for this episode. For Affable Chat, I'm Benjamin. And I'm Joey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>